Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always Beyond Reality Radio. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. We've got a great one lined up for you tonight. It's the 50th anniversary of the Sharon Tate murder by the Charles Manson family. This is quite a story, and most of us know it because it's part of American uh, legend, urban legend in some cases. But what we do know is that four members of the Manson family snuck into the home of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, the famous film director. And uh, Polanski wasn't in the home at the time, but Sharon Tate was with three other people, and they were brutally and savagely murdered. Our guest tonight, J.C. Nova, is the host of a podcast called Death by Misadventure, and we're going to be talking about the Sharon Tate murder, the Manson family, and what happened exactly 50 years ago tonight in California in that home. So it'll be a very interesting conversation, and uh, I'm anxious to do We've had J.C. on the program before. We talked about the 27 Club with with uh, J.C. last time. We were talking about the number of rock and roll musicians who died at an early age of 27 years old and uh, how mysteriously some of that uh, occurred. Um, so it's, it, she's a great guest, and I'm really looking forward to having her back. Tomorrow night, just a reminder, is a best of program. And then uh, Monday, we've got another really terrific true crime story for you. Reporter and author John Hook will be here. He's written a book called Who Killed Bob Crane? And we'll be talking about the unsolved 1978 murder of the star of Hogan's Heroes. Some people think, actually prosecutors and investigators think they know exactly who did it. They just could not prove it in a court. But it's a great and very, very interesting story. In fact, it is the epitome of sex, lies, and videotape. If you know anything about Bob Crane, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll hear the story when we uh, talk with John Hook Monday night. Tuesday, we've got a paranormal uh, friend and uh, a bit of a, a legend in the paranormal community, Jeff Belanger. You remember, we've had him on talking about Krampus around holiday time. He's going to come on Tuesday night and talk about Stories from New England, legends about cryptids and other odd activity and occurrences in New England. That's He's got a podcast about the topic, and that will be our discussion on Tuesday night with Jeff Belanger. So a lot of great things coming up on the program. Uh, if you have not found the Beyond Reality Radio coffee mug yet, if you're not holding it right now and using it to drink whatever beverage you are drinking while you listen to this program, well, you're really missing out. Go to the website, Beyond Reality Radio. Dot com And you'll see the mug there. You can click on the link. The shipping is free domestically, and we'd love to ship one out to you. So stop by the website, beyondrealityradio.com, and get yourself a coffee mug. Makes a great gift as well. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we will bring in our guest, J.C. Nova, tonight. We're talking about the Sharon Tate murders by the Manson family. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio. 
Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. Welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Some of the times we talk about uh, stories or uh, topics that are a bit macabre. Tonight is going to be one of those. Because late night on August 8th of 1969, four Manson family members were directed to go to, quote, that house where Melcher used to live and totally destroy everyone in it, as gruesome as you can, end quote. Those instructions came from Charlie Manson, and they were given to Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkle. And they followed those instructions and made their way to 10050 Cielo Drive, a home that had been rented by film director Roman Polanski and his pregnant wife, Sharon Tate. At the home that night were Tate and three of her friends, all of whom were unknown and completely unfamiliar with Manson and his followers. Polanski was in London at the time. As the clock moved into the early hours of August 9th, 1969, 50 years ago, these very moments, the home turned into an unbelievable hell of murder and torture as all of the occupants of the house, including Tate and her eight-and-a-half-month-old unborn baby, were savagely murdered in what appears to have been a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Our guest tonight is a returning guest to the program, J.C. Nova, a psychic astrologer, but also a podcaster, host of a program called Death by Misadventure. J.C., welcome to back to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here tonight. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. We're going to be talking about some gruesome things tonight and a topic that may make some people a bit uncomfortable because it is just, it's one of those things where the truth is stranger than fiction and certainly more disgusting or disturbing than than fiction in this case. But before we get there, this is an odd transition to make. What have you been up to uh, since you're on the program last? Um, we're continuing to uh, produce uh, Death by Misadventure, which is basically a podcast that um, follows the infamous deaths of celebrities and, and rock stars. And so we recently just did one on Sharon Tate, and then prior to that was Lane Staley. Um, also, I recently launched a uh, kind of a psychic guide type we- website called Best psychics.com b-e-s-t and that's where people can go where they can look at reviews of other psychics online they can also find out information about uh different types of uh, psychics astrology crystals just a variety of um information and then we're going to be working on some unsolved murder mysteries starting in september the last time you were, you were here, I believe we were talking about the 27 Club and the deaths of uh, many rock and roll musicians that, uh, for whatever reason, whatever the circumstances were, died at an early age of 27 years old. 
Yeah, we um, we were talking. I was on with Tom Dre, and we talked about um, the Twenty Seven Club, which is basically uh, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, several rock stars that died at the age of twenty seven. Which is from an astrological perspective, it's a very significant time. People are just getting ready to go into their Saturn return, which is basically where a person is going into adulthood. But at that time, a lot of tragic circumstances can happen and also a lot of positive ones. Lots of times people get married, they have children, they move. Uh, but for these particular rock stars during their life, um, even Jim Morrison, it was a very pivotal time for them. And it seemed like as we were researching each podcast, as we write the podcast and investigate what's going on, usually we find that most of them have some type of premonition that that the end is near or something, there's going to be kind of a twist of fate. And also there was always some numerology numerology aspect to it. Um, Some people that follow numbers or mystical numbers. Um, We found in a lot of these podcasts that we've um, written and produced, uh, the number six comes up quite frequently. Um, Also along with the number nine and the number seven. So it's kind of interesting. You start to see a pattern and we saw the same with um, Sharon Tate as well. When you say those numbers come up often, do they come up uh, through a, num- a numerology standpoint whereby uh, a numerologist will take the person's name and deduce those numbers? Or are you seeing them in things like addresses or phone numbers or just uh, you know numbers that happen to be affiliated with the story? It's numbers like, for example, a person's life path number is based on the day that you were born, the month, the date, and the year. Right. And when you equal those numbers and reduce it to a single digit, that's your your life path number. For example, for Sharon Tate, her life path number was a six. For Roman Polanski, his life path number was a six. Tex Watson's life path number was a six. And the house that they lived at, one zero zero five zero. Celio Drive was a number six as well. So you have that 666 energy vibrating. So six can be a super positive number about family, love, and relationships. But when you start seeing that number uh, frequently and depending on what type of energy is going on around the person at the time or where they live, it can be a double-edged sword and can turn uh, incredibly negative. And we've seen that in a pattern. I think we shared with you the story when we were on the show of uh, Viola Beach, which is a British band that died in um, Sweden uh, a few years ago uh, in a freak accident. Their car drove off a bridge, and the manager and the whole band died. But it was like they died on the day number six. Like, all the band members' life paths were number six. Like, there was all this kind of strange, mystical... Uh, maybe people might say it's a coincidence, but we have seen a pattern as we've studied all these different stories. Now, as you uh, continue to evolve and mold your podcast, there seems to be an an amazing uh, surge in the number of people that are interested in true crime, particularly unsolved true crime. What's what's the fascination that seems to be taking our culture by hold? Well, I think it's a part of the unknown. I think for true crime stories, a lot of the true crime uh, women, for whatever reason, tend to be uh, one of the bigger audience for our particular podcast. Our main audience is, uh, I think it's like 75% male and 25% female. I think it might be because we cover a lot of um, 
rock stars and, and bands and things like that. But I think people are always curious about the afterlife and, and is it just, were you at the wrong place at the wrong time? Is it just a coincidence or there, do you have some karmic fate attached with that person? Um, you know, what was going on in your life? People are trying to figure out like, why did this terrible thing happened to this person? Could it have been avoided? Was there a warning? Did they feel like something bad might happen? Um, and people are curious. People want to know uh, what life has in store for them, but also um, what may be in store for them in the afterlife. Is there more than just what we see here on earth? Is there a God? Are there ghosts? Um, I think that's why people are fascinated with true crime and the paranormal. As a psychic astrologer, what do you think of the afterlife? Do you have an opinion? Yeah, actually, I do. Um, I started, I had a a near-death experience at the age of four. Um, I was on a church retreat, and um, I I drowned, basically, and then this 16-year-old boy rescued me out of this cove and... um, Uh, save my life, basically. But at the time, I was like, I had this out-of-body experience where I saw myself drowning. And I was like, my my friend that was with me, this little friend, she was trying to get people's attention to say, you know, hey, she's drowning. And no one would pay attention to her. And finally, these teenage boys saw me, and this one boy came and saved me. And since that time, I feel like all of us have um, psychic ability. And sometimes um, I've found that when people uh, are in involved in some type of tragic situation or perhaps an accident or involved in some type of trauma, um, it kind of lifts the veil so that you're more open to see the other side. I always feel connected with spirits since I was little. I was never afraid of death, um, but I was also raised in an environment that not to be afraid of it. I was more fascinated by it and communication with spirit. And um, even for, you know, when our family members or friends pass on, I do feel like that you still have a connection with that person. And I also feel like certain homes, like if somebody died in a house, it will leave a psychic imprint of that particular energy. And um, I think, you know, as the next 10, 20, 30 years, I think it'll be easier. More people will be able to communicate with the dead. More people, astrology and and psychics will be part of everyday life. Uh, We've got about a minute here before we have to go to our first break, and um, that's not enough time to start discussing the Sharon Tate murder. But I want to find out a little bit more about the podcast in that time. How frequently are you releasing the podcast, and where can people find it? Okay, um, Death by Misadventure, um, you can go deathbymisadventure.co.uk is our website, but also the podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, CastBox, TuneIn. Um, right now, we typically do two episodes per month. Um, we're working towards going towards a weekly episode starting in September. And so right now we probably have, I think we have 24 podcasts available, and it's a variety of um, rock stars to actresses to bands. Like we have one on Marilyn Monroe, Prince, Lane Staley, uh, The 27 Club, Viper Room, just a variety of podcasts. So depending on your interest, I think you could find something that would be interesting. And each story is told from the investigative 
part, which is like just the facts. It's the true facts of what happened. And then we add a mystical element to it. We look at it from a supernatural perspective of what was going on from a spiritual perspective. And then um, if there were any conspiracies involved, and then we also look at after the fact, like where are the people now that were involved with that particular celebrity or rock star at the time of their death and what are they doing now? And have there been any hauntings or any other you know, strange, unexplained experiences since then. Is it more common than not to have some type of paranormal activity associated with stories like this? I think it's actually very common. Um, it was interesting. I, when we finished the Lane Staley podcast, I'm a huge Allison Chains fan, and his girlfriend had died a few years before he had passed away. And um, Mike Starr, his old bass player, had come to visit him. It happened to be, I guess, it was Mike Starr's birthday, and at the time, Lane Staley was in full-blown heroin addiction and basically didn't really leave his house that much. But he had told Mike the last time Mike had seen him that he um, had, um, that his ex-girlfriend had come to visit him the night before, you know, basically that she was going to take him into the afterlife, like she was visiting him. And so he was having this supernatural experience before he actually died. Mike Starr left that day, didn't see him again, and then I guess Lane Staley died like 24 hours later, but they didn't find him until two weeks later. So I've found a lot of these actors and musicians have all had some kind of weird supernatural or paranormal experience before they've passed. We're talking about uh, the Sharon Tate murders, which actually occurred 50 years ago, this very minute, although it was... uh, West Coast. It was Pacific time, so you're. I think you're in the in the West Coast, JC, right? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles, so it's uh, nine thirty six here. Nine thirty, and and the murders occurred shortly after midnight in into uh, August nine 9th of nineteen sixty nine. So it's a few hours away uh, to be that precise moment. Let's talk a little about a little bit about who these people were. Um, you know, many people hear the name Sharon Tate, but nobody, many people don't know who she was. Tell us who Sharon Tate was. Yeah, Sharon Tate was, um, at the time she died, she was 26 years old. Um, She was an actress, but uh, she grew up in a military family. Uh, They bounced around from city to city and country to country. She actually went to high school in Italy um, in high school. She was a cheerleader. She was prom queen. And she first started acting in uh, films over in Italy at the time doing extra work. And when she came back to the United States, um, she got a manager, and she was signed to a seven-year contract um, by MGM. And so that was pretty common in the 60s. A lot of actresses were signed to um, movie studios for a long period of time, and then the studio would basically, you know, choose films for them. And so she was 20 years old at the time when she started acting, um, but she really didn't have any uh, breakout role until it was probably just a few years before she died. So it would have been right around 1965, just before she um, met Roman Polanski. And um, she had started in the movie uh, Valley of the Dolls, and she wanted to uh, be in this movie that Roman Polanski was uh, filming about vampires. 
And so her manager had taken her to London to introduce her to Roman Polanski. And at the time, he was considered one of the young, hot directors, and they actually lived um, right around the corner from each other in London. And I guess the first two times they met each other, it didn't go really well. And then the second time, once he got to know her a little bit better, he thought, oh, she's going to be perfect for the film. Um, He cast her in the movie. They ended up falling in love and uh, getting married. But at the time... The interesting thing about Roman Polanski is, though, even though he was brilliant, um, in the entertainment crowds and in the movie industry, uh, people thought there was something, like, a little bit off about him. There were, like, lots of times, like, when he was involved in certain movies, he was involved in drugs and had an interesting sexual life and all these crazy things that were happening with him. Well, lots of times people wouldn't work with him because of it, but... Sharon didn't care. She fell in love and she wanted to get married. And so they ended up getting married. And at the time, um, he was going to be filming, uh, I think it was called Day of the Dolphin in London. And so they were looking around for a house to rent. And so they rented the house in Benedict Canyon at 10050 Celio Drive. And that house was pretty famous because there was a lot of famous people that had lived in that house before. But more than anything, Terry Melcher, which was a music producer and the son of Doris Day, and his girlfriend at the time, um, Candace Bergen, if anybody knows who she is, she was on the TV show. Murphy Brown used to live there. And at the time, Manson was uh, hoping to be a musician and had presented his music to Terry Melcher. And at one moment, he was thinking about possibly giving Manson a contract, but then decided against it. So Sharon and Roman moved into this house in February of 1969, and Sharon was pregnant, and they were like, oh, we're going to go live in this house, and then after the baby's born, we're going to figure out where we want to live and and go buy a home. And at the time, uh, Roman had this friend called uh, Wojciech Frakowski, and they were friends in Poland since they were little boys, and actually uh, Wojciech's father gave uh, Roman Polanski his break in the film industry and actually funded his first film. And his girlfriend was Abigail Folger, and Abigail Folger was the heiress to the Folger Coffee family. And so um, Roman had asked them, hey, you know, I have to go to London to film this movie. Do you guys mind moving in with Sharon and kind of keeping an eye on her um, while I'm gone? So they moved in to, you know, stay at the house, but also kind of keep an eye on Sharon. And she had this other friend, Jay Sebring, which was her ex-boyfriend. He was a big hairdresser in Hollywood, and he did all the celebrity hair. And even though their relationship didn't work out, they were really close friends. And so he was always there also. And the house became very famous for being like a party house, and it had an open-door policy. People would come to the house all all day, all night. There was parties, drugs, you name it, all kinds of crazy things going on at the house. And um, in our investigation, we found out that Manson had actually come to the house about a month after they had moved in looking for Terry Melcher. And Sharon was home at the time, and um, I think one of her uh, maintenance people talked to him. He was looking for Melcher, and they told him, hey, he doesn't live here anymore. And Sharon was upset. She's like, oh, who's that creepy guy? Why is he coming here? And they were like, oh, you know, he's looking for, for Melcher, and then he left. 
And then there was a young kid, William Gerritsen, that was actually staying in the guest house and was considered the caretaker of the home at the time they were living there. The um, the, the home itself, um, it no longer stands. Is that correct? Yeah, the house was torn down in 1994. And I think another home has been built in its place. But before we get to talking about that part of it, I want to go back to the Roman Polanski uh, angle to this, because uh, the film that you were talking about that Sharon Tate wanted to be in that Roman Polanski was casting was called, I think, The Fearless Vampire Killers. And it was a it was kind of a uh, farcical comedy slash horror um, that Roman Polanski actually starred in as well. Um, it's actually a movie I, I, I've enjoyed several times. And that was the film he did right before he did Rosemary's Baby, which was a very pivotal film in Polanski's career. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Um, and th- and then actually there's some connection with Rosemary's Baby to this story. So we know who Roman Polanski was. We know who Sharon Tate was. The two of them were married, I, I think it was in 1968, January of 1968. They'd been married a year. They move into this home in February of 69. And it was only a few short months later. Sharon Tate is now well into her eighth month or, or um, f- almost two weeks from being full term in her pregnancy. And uh, the unspeakable happens. Right. The evening that happened, which we found, like, when we... Book, and I thought, oh, you know, what What else could I possibly find out about what happened to... But I found out a lot of um, interesting information that um, I didn't know about her. She was very close with her family, and she had two little sisters that were actually their her parents had her, and then she didn't. Um, they didn't have children again until Sharon was nine years old. So her sisters were like ten and twelve years younger than her. So at the time she was pregnant, um, they were teenagers, and so two weeks before she died, she had seen her family, and they went. She went to see her family, and they watched the moon landing together. And then on the day of um, August 8th, her two sisters had called and they wanted to come to her house and spend the night and have a sleepover. And at the time, Sharon wasn't feeling well. And she told them, you know, no, let's wait until after the baby's born. I'm not really feeling that great. Um, So no, I I don't want you to, to come over. I'm sorry, but you know, we'll do a rain check. So her two sisters didn't come that evening. She spoke to her friend, Ava Roosevelt, which was an actress, and she invited her to go out to dinner with her and J.C. Bring and um, Abigail Folger and Wojciech Fakowski. And so Ava was like, hey, you know, I've got these plans with a German producer. I can't um, make it, but maybe I can come over for a nightcap like around 10.30, you know, 10.45 at night. And Sharon's like, okay, great, no problem. So they all go out to dinner at El Coyote, which still exists today. It's a Mexican restaurant um, in Los Angeles on Beverly Boulevard. And so they go and they have dinner and they leave the restaurant. I think it's right around 9.30, 9.45. They get home at 10.30 at night. And so right around 11.30 at night, um, Ava jumps in her car, and she's on her way to go over to Sharon's house to have a nightcap, and all of a sudden, her engine light starts to flicker, 
And so she's driving and she's thinking, oh my God, am I going to make it to the house? Because Benedict Canyon is kind of like far up the hill. And so she decided at 1130 at night, no, I'm not going to go to Sharon's house. I'm just going to turn around and go home. So she goes home. So right after midnight, um, Tex Watson and uh, the three other girls jump in their car and they're going up to um, Benedict Canyon. And as you said in the introduction of the show, uh, said, you know, just go in there, kill everybody and, you know, make it wicked. Um, just destroy everyone in it. So they get to the house and um, they run into a kid that had been went visiting um, William Garrison, who was the, the caretaker. And so he was just leaving and it just happened to be there. And um, so Tex Watson shot him. And I guess they found a window open at the mansion. And so he cut the screen out and he climbed through the window, Tex Watson did, and then he was able to let the girls in. And then basically just all these, obviously they were murdered and all these horrific things happened to him. But what was interesting is they kept saying, you know, Tex Watson saying, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. And it was very kind of satanic in the way they, they killed him. And they didn't seem to have any remorse whatsoever. And there was this really interesting connection, sweet connection between Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring because they used to be boyfriend and girlfriend. And um, Tex had like tied them together and uh, Jay tried to, tried to protect Sharon and in protecting her, they killed him first. And um, I just thought from a, from a karmic perspective, from a spiritual perspective, Sharon Tate would always say in interviews, like she believes in fate. Um, she followed Wicca and she just kind of like, she believed that everything happened for a reason. And um, obviously what happened to them, nobody deserves that. But there was a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of dark energy in that that house. They had a lot of um, wild parties there. Um, in our research, Roman Polanski, you know, would force Sharon into some unusual sexual relationships that she didn't really want to participate in. So there was a lot of dark things that happened in that house. And I believe when you have that type of energy and then you're bringing in like the Manson followers into it, it just kind of collided together. Um that evening, and it was just horrific. And after the killings, they escaped. And when the police came the next day, what 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 was funny is like the cops were called, but the cops never showed up. They had received a phone call. Um, the neighbors next door had heard gunshots, but never called the police. There was a camp counselor down the hill that was doing some camp for 70 kids, and he could hear a man screaming, and he called the police saying, hey, you know, there's something going on. A security guard heard the screams, called the cops. The cops never showed up that evening, and so the bodies were discovered by the maid, 
And so when the maid ran next door to the neighbor and they called the police, they finally showed up and obviously found found everybody. But they didn't know at the time. They had no idea who killed who killed Sharon and her friends, but they initially thought it was um, the guy that lived in the guest house. And he was like, he was high at the time and had no idea what was going on. And he was actually arrested for the murders and in jail for two days before they let him go. And when they let him go, they they just had no idea um, who had killed her and her friends. And they didn't really discover it until a few months later after mm-hmm. the Manson family was arrested for something completely different. Our guest tonight, J.C. Nova, host of the podcast Death by Misadventure. She's also an astrologer and a and a psychic, and we're talking about the Sharon Tate murders. Uh, we we were speaking specifically about the house, JC. We've just got a couple minutes in this segment, but from what I understand, the the house no longer exists, but the property still seems to have some type of dark energy. And uh, a gentleman by the main name of David Oman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Yes, I am. Yeah, he's been on the program before and has talked often about that area and that property. And uh, his house, which sits very close, uh, seems to have a similar dark energy. Do we know anything about the property? Is there a history there that might give an indication of why this energy might be there? Well, he bought um, the mansion was torn down in 1994, and about five years afterwards, um, he bought a plot nearby for forty thousand dollars to build a house with his father. And when they were doing construction on the home, um, his construction workers would hear voices and footsteps on the top floor, and they always felt like there was a, a spooky feeling, like they weren't alone. And they'd also hear voices, they'd get a cold breeze on their neck. And then uh, in July of 2004, Amon had woke from a deep sleep around 2 o'clock in the morning, and he had seen basically a ghost at the bottom of his bed, and they, it was pointing towards the drive driveway, which led to the Manson murder site. And the ghost never spoke to him, but it kept pointing towards the driveway. And at the time, he was really fascinated. So he went down to the LAPD to try to figure out if there were like items left on the on the vacant lot where the house was, or if there was any bloody clothing or DNA. And so when he was looking through the photos, he saw a photo of J.C. Bring, and um, he said it bore an eerie resemblance to the figure that he had seen at his bedside. And to me, that was very telling, because as we studied the story, I mean, Jay was... He was so in love with Sharon and was, was, you know, so protective of her. And in our research, it was showing that Roman and Sharon's marriage was, was on the rocks, basically, and she wasn't sure if she was going to stay with him or not based on all these strange things that were happening in their relationship. And um, I really feel like uh, his spirit stayed behind, you know, trying to protect her and um, the energy around the house. And since that time, um, a lot of uh, paranormal investigators have gone there. And one particular one, Barry Taff, um, basically called it the Mount Everest of haunted houses or the Disneyland for dead. So the energy is very strong there, which would make sense because of what happened was so traumatic. And then um, 
in the trial of Linda Kasabian um, because she actually didn't participate in the murder. She was like the getaway driver, but she did dispose of all the weapons and she was dropping them, dropping the weapons as they were taking off. Um, so she was just kind of throwing them everywhere. And so there's a strong chance that um, some of this, the murder weapons were around right. uh the, the area that he had built his dad's home. Right. And even after the murders, the cops initially didn't find the murder weapons. Like one kid found the gun and like, you know, the media had found other weapons. So they were just kind of thrown all over the place. Our guest tonight is JC Nova. We'll bring her back in in just a moment. Uh, just a quick look ahead to what we've got coming up on the program. Tomorrow night will be a best of show. Monday, John Hook will be here, another true crime night. He is a reporter and the author of a book called Who Killed Bob Crane, one of Hollywood's great unsolved murders at this point. Although, if you ask any of the investigators and the prosecutors, they say it's been solved. They just couldn't get a conviction. Bob Crane, of course, the star of the TV series Hogan's Heroes, and his murder is nothing short of sex, lies, and video videotapes. So, great conversation Monday night. I'm looking forward to that. And Tuesday, Jeff Belanger... He's an author, folklorist, and a podcast host. will come on to share stories from his New England Legends podcast, cryptid stories, ghost stories, uh, and more that he talks about on his podcast. That's Jeff Belanger, Tuesday night. Like I said, tonight, J.C. Nova is with us. J.C., we're talking about the murders of Sharon Tate and three of her friends by the hands of uh, four members of the Charles Manson family. Let's take a minute and talk about Charlie Manson. You know, this is a guy that we've seen pictures of with these very piercing eyes. Most of the pictures we've seen of him have been from prison because that's where he spent um, the last uh, 40, what, I guess, uh, to so 48 years anyway, because he died a couple years ago. Um, but who was Charlie Manson and why was he so magnetic? Well, looking at Charlie Manson's chart, he had several planets in Scorpio, so he had that powerful magnetism, and he could see instantly, look at a person and see their weaknesses, and he tend he tended to prey on people that were um, emotionally broken, and because he came from a broken home himself growing up, when he was a small child, his mother was an alcoholic, and she had sold him for a pitcher of beer at a bar. And um, afterwards, she had sold him to a woman that wanted to have children, and one of her, I believe it was her brother, had to go look for him to, to bring him back. So he grew up in this really dysfunctional household, but he also learned through his charm and through his magnetic personality and qualities how he could get people to do things for him and basically do his evil deeds. He didn't have to do it himself, and it was almost like um, a psychological experiment for him, like, okay, if I tell this person to go kill this person, are they really going to do it? And so it just became, people became, were lost. They would find Charlie. He would kind of lead the way. And uh, I think at the time of the murders, he had something like 100 followers. Um, he was also a, a talented musician, so he was able to uh, make friends with one of the, the Beach Boy musicians and was able to even get Terry Melcher to consider his music. And um, he just kind of found a way to kind of uh, place himself in other people's lives 
But then at the same time, because he was mentally ill, if he felt slighted by somebody, he wanted to get revenge against them. And it, it, you know, he just went to the extreme of telling the Manson followers, okay, go in there and just, you know, kill everybody. And then after the killings happened, he wasn't happy. He thought that they did a messy job. And that's the next night they went and killed um, the grocery store executive, the La Biancas, and killed them as well. And the police still didn't know it was him. And not until they were arrested in Death Valley for, like, grand theft and something else did they actually figure out um, that they had something to do with Sharon Tate's murder. The um, fact that those family members, and I, I don't know, you know many of them, but the four that were involved in these murders uh, were pretty high profile because of the trial and, uh, and the story that went along with it. They seemed loyal to the death. They were... Um, they were Charlie Manson's people, and they lied for him. They killed for him. They would have done anything for him. Again, there's a magnetism there, mentally ill or not, that he had that allowed him to exert this kind of control over people. Well, it's it's almost like there's the one side, like if you look at it purely from a realistic perspective, like there's always a ringleader when you're dealing with like uh, addiction. So all of them were heavy into drugs, heavy into alcohol, and he was kind of like the ringleader. And when someone's um, on drugs, they were doing PCP, they were doing all kinds of LSD, they were doing all these crazy drugs, that it was easier for him to manipulate them. And then once they were there, because they all came from broken homes, most of them didn't get along with their parents, that he fed on their insecurities and said, you know, well, I love you, I'm going to take care of you, that they just followed him to to the end. And so it's it's a very kind of weird psychological way to look at it. But then from a karmic perspective, it's like they have these weird karmic ties with each other. And even um, them choosing Sharon, uh, Sharon uh, would state in an interview just before she died, she said, I think something more powerful than we are decides our fate for us. And my whole life has been decided by fate. That's how she felt. And her husband, Roman Polanski, had said after um, she passed away and in his autobiography, he said before he left her, he had a grotesque thought that when he kissed her goodbye, he heard a voice inside him saying, you're never going to see her again. And so it's kind of like if you look at it from a supernatural perspective that there's all um, this storyline is kind of playing out and how some lives were spared, like her friend Ava Roosevelt, if she would have made it to to Sharon's house to have that late nightcap and her car hadn't had car trouble, she would have died that night. If Sharon hadn't have intuitively known, no, I can't have my two little sisters here, if her two little sisters would have spent the night at her house, they would have died as well. So there was all these kind of karmic twists of fate. And with Manson, um, I think people, some people are just pure evil. And, and he obviously uh, signifies pure, pure evil. It's one thing to call someone evil, and I will agree with you completely, he was evil. But it's another thing, if we look at that definition a little more carefully, was there something demonic in a spiritual sense about Charlie Manson? I definitely feel that, and and going back to um, 
when someone is like, when there's addiction involved, alcohol, just all this dark energy is around you, you have a choice to go towards the light or go towards the dark. And Charlie found that he had more power in the dark versus light. He tried to do things the right way and he wasn't treated well by his family and he was in and out of, um, you know, juvenile jail and just was really abused as a child. But he found that because he was so smart that in the darkness he could be, you know, the leader. Like, okay, if I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be really, really bad and I don't even have to do um, any of the work. I'm going to have everyone um, do the work for me. And it was like he treated it like a lab experiment, like these were his little mice, and he was going to get do these little tests on them to see what he could get them to do. And through that energy, he felt this sense of power. And that's like when I look from an astrological perspective with Scorpio energy, had like five planets in Scorpio, it makes him very intuitive. Like he can see people for who they really are. He can look at a person and say, okay, is that someone I can ma- manipulate? Is that person have enough darkness in them to do my business? for me. And so, yes, in a sense, that is very demonic in, in the way he chose to use his power, because that is the only power he had was when he was doing something bad. What are, where does the uh, Rosemary's Baby story come into this? There was a, some type of curse associated with that film and uh, Polanski, wasn't there? Yeah, it was like interesting that um, when Rosemary's Baby was being made, a lot of people were, you know, a lot of studios weren't sure if it should be made. Obviously, the the murder of Sharon Tate was one of them, but also um, just right after uh, after completing his work, one of them, the film the film composer of the film actually died. He fell off a cliff in Los Angeles. Uh, Mia Farrow at the time uh, was served divorce papers on set. Uh, the Dakota building where it was filmed, um, Robert Evans, the producer, would say, you know, the Dakota building has, is a very gothic building. And he said during the whole time he was there, he just had this very eerie, dark feeling about the building. And that same building, 11 years later, is where uh, John Lennon was murdered outside the building, because John Lennon used to live there. And even um, Roman Polanski's uh, agent at the time, um, William, and he was the one that had to identify the bodies, uh, Sharon's body, and, and the rest that had passed away and had to contact Roman in London. When he decided to represent uh, Roman Polanski at the time, he was only 26 years old, talent, up-and-coming talent agent, everyone in Hollywood was like saying, don't represent Roman Polanski. He has this weird, dark energy about him. Like, he's brilliant, but no, you know, you should stay away from him. So he made a ton of money with Roman Polanski, but, like, 20 years later... um, one of the newspapers, it was L.A. Times, was looking for him, and he actually, 20 years later, was homeless in L.A., sleeping on Ventura Boulevard in Sherman Oaks. Wow. Like, he lost everything. So it's just like all these kind of weird, kind of creepy twists of fate, and obviously Roman Plansky had... Um, several more problems after his wife passed away. And, uh, you know, Robert Evans hasn't had an easy life after he did that movie. He was arrested for possession of cocaine. And um, another one of the producers had kidney failure. Like, it was just like all these 
strange things happening to people. And it's like, wow, either they all have really bad luck or perhaps it has something to do with this film or it has something to do with the topic about the film. Um, but people really felt like there was always this kind of dark cloud following well, Polanski around. Polanski's still a fugitive, right? And he's still um, wanted by uh, the legal establishment in California. Yeah, he was arrested, I believe it was about 12 years after his wife died for um, raping a 13-year-old girl at uh, Jack Nicholson's house, right. was having a party, and... Um, they got her to the party telling the mom that maybe she was going to be a model. And uh, so he was arrested for that. He was in jail. Uh, he was going, he went to trial and he was in jail for like two months and they were doing um, psychological tests on him. And he thought he was going to get off on probation. And when he found that the judge was going to actually give him prison time, he took off yeah. and he went to France and um, he's still a fugitive. Now he's one, several Oscars for different movies that he's done. Right. Um, but in 2018, the Academy basically took all of his awards away from him. And, uh, you know, he lives in France now. He's been married for about 30 years. But he still has a good relationship with his wife's uh, ex-wife's family. Um, they still support him, and uh, which I find interesting. But he definitely has had a very troubled life yeah, after I, actually, her I actually saw a documentary about that uh, that whole incident with Roman Polanski and he was about to strike a plea deal or something there was a lot of things going on and he was a bit betrayed if I remember the tone of the uh, documentary I don't remember the name of it though JC that song Helter Skelter that was specifically cited by Charlie Manson as being something that influenced him do we know what he said that song told him to do or what the influence was well, uh, I, I just think it influenced him from a, a, a murder perspective. He, for some reason, like when he did the Manson following, he wanted to try to start race riots and he had all these different bizarre beliefs of things that he wanted to do. But basically, you know, in my opinion, he was mentally ill and the music would speak to him and it, it, he would think like, Oh, okay, this, this music is telling me to go kill this person or oh, I'm going to go have, you know, tech squats and do all this killing for me. So it was just kind of like he had these people around him and it's like, whatever he said, they would just go and do it. And so as someone that has power, the more power you have, you just got worse and worse. And when he um, became what we would consider to be a public figure for very nefarious reasons. Um, you know, we, we see things like uh, swastikas tattooed in his forehead. I mean, that came a little bit later, but you know, the man um, clearly it was very, very disturbed. And yet he was able to get, you said at one point, a hundred people to be what we would call followers or disciples or, or something. Um, I mean, that is, I, I almost think there is something mystical going on there. I definitely agree. Whenever I see, like in astrology, when we see someone having multiple planets and, for example, your sun sign represents who you're trying to be in this lifetime and then Mercury is how you think and Venus is how you love and Mars is your energy. So he had multiple planets in Scorpio. So it was like almost like all of his chart was in Scorpio. So it made him very intense and obsessive and controlling and um, also extremely intelligent and very 
very intuitive. And he could have, like, if he went towards the light, he could have been this really great mystical figure. He could have, you know, been a religious person, be a, uh, a priest or a preacher. But instead, he decided to use it for evil. And part of the problem was, is, like, the California Parole Board said he had a history of manipulation. Um, he was schizophrenic. He had paranoid, delusional behavior. That's why he could listen to, say, Helter Skelter and think that it's like, oh, go kill all these people. But what was really weird is, like, um, when he got to Los Angeles, like, in early 1968, he had met an aspiring musician, uh, Gary Hinman, who was a music teacher, and he's the one that actually introduced him to Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. And um, everyone thought he was really charming and, you know, musically, like, they thought he was gifted and he might have something. And that's how he got introduced to Terry Melcher. And they were all kind of, like, impressed, like, you know, here's this guy and he's got these kind of group of followers. Um, JC, you're in L.A. Do you live in the U.K., though? Um, actually, Eduardo, who um, does the intro to our podcast, is actually in London, ah, okay. and um, we have some of our production team members in London, so it's a co-production between the two. So one of the things I find interesting as we talk about this story, and we talk about paranormal connections and hauntings and, and dark energy, is that uh, one of the stars of a very famous, or popular, I guess I should say, paranormal reality television show, Zach Bagans, just, it was announced, bought the LaBianco house. Um, do you know anything about that? And it seems pretty interesting that it's attracting that much attention from somebody like Zach, who's obviously a paranormal heavyweight. Yeah, um, I believe, isn't Zach the one that does the TV show yeah, on Ghost uh, Adventures. the Travel Channel? Yeah, Ghost Adventures. Yep, Ghost Adventures is Yeah. So he has a museum in Las Vegas that he collects things from, like, uh, you know, like he's a huge Charles Manson follower. And so he has all these um, items or memorabilia from from the Charles Manson uh, uh, crime scene and a bunch of things that he's bought along the way. And so I think he's really um, interested in the house because of the connection to Charles Manson and just his fascination with him and how this person who's crazy could get these people to do all these horrible things to so many people. And, you know, even though you were asking earlier about the Helter Skelter song, you know, Manson was trying to say, like, oh, you know, I'm trying to start this race war. Like, if I commit these murders, I'm going to say that black people did it, and it's going to cause, you know, this huge uproar, which was just kind of an excuse, obviously, to get people so he could see what they would do um, for him. And it was because he was a schizophrenic. And when you're able to surround yourself with people that keep telling you you're wonderful and amazing, and he did have this charming side to him that he would be able to show for a short period of time and draw people in, and then he would flip the switch and show this this evil side. And the La Bianca murders just happened because, you know, he thought that Tex Watson and the girls messed up uh, Sharon Tate's murder and made it too messy. And so the day after Sharon Tate's murder, he made all of them get in a car, and they went hunting, basically. Basically for victims, and so they had been driving around for hours when they came across the La Bianca home, and then you know um, the man and his wife were were killed there. So yeah, I find it fascinating. I would assume that maybe if he's able to, he might turn turn it into some type of 
place that you go tour or something like that, like you did in um, Las Vegas. The um, you know the murders, the Tate, mur- the Sharon Tate murder, and the murder of uh, her friends was gruesome and horrific enough. But then the four Manson family members uh, wrote in Sharon Tate's blood the word pig on the front door. And I think they did some other things. Was there, was there a pentagram or something? I'm trying to remember. Were, were there, was there more than just that word? Yeah, it was, it was pigs. Um, and there was a pentagram and, you know, not to be, you know, for all the listeners out there to be so gruesome, but they even Susan Atkins says that she tasted Sharon's blood and oh, just they did all kinds of weird sick things. And um, actually, when the murders had happened, uh, Frakowski and his girlfriend, Abigail, had actually escaped, and they were running down the yard, and Tex Watson and, and Susan Atkins got them and, and killed them, basically, in the front yard. And for Abigail, um, she had just talked to her mother, like, a few hours before she died, and she was actually leaving for San Francisco the next morning because she was going to San Francisco to celebrate her birthday with her mom. So there was there all these kind of, like, last-minute things that, that happened in, like, little twists of fate, like Sharon saving her two little sisters from a, a gruesome fate, her friend Ava saving herself, by having car trouble, and she said it was weird. Like, she did an interview afterwards. She said, you know, the, the engine light was flickering, and there was all these weird things going on with her car, and she was like, oh, my God, I need to go home. And then when she took her car in afterwards, there was nothing wrong with the car. Mm. So, you know, was there divine intervention there? Because it wasn't her time, you know, her time to go. And then I found it really unusual that after these gruesome killings, both of them, the cops still didn't know who it was and that, um, you know, they didn't find them until a few months later, you know, after they had been arrested for, for grand theft, it was Susan Atkins that started bragging about the murder while she was in jail to this woman, Virginia Graham. And she went ahead and narked on her and said, Hey, they have something to do with the Sharon Tate murders. And then that blew the case wide open. If, she hadn't done that. If she hadn't been bragging in prison about being part of those murders, was there anything else that was pointing the police in the right direction? No, and that was the surprising part. They were saying that they felt like the cops really screwed up. Like, there was multiple calls the night that Sharon was murdered, and no cops showed up. And um, the family that lived two doors down uh, had actually um, had called the cops in the morning to say, "Hey, the maid's here," and she's screaming, saying that the you know Sharon and her whole uh, her friends had been killed. It took them an hour to show up to wow. to the house. Like if that would happen today, the cops would be there in like five minutes. Um, it took them an hour to show up, and then they thought that the the kid in the guest house did it, and they arrested him, and then he was released after two days. There's just all these weird, strange things happened and you know why the cops didn't weren't able to figure it out was was beyond me i I just thought wow this is pretty messy has there ever been any discussion from the police department as to uh, an explanation for why they seem so lackadaisical when it came to those calls while the murders were taking place they completely ignored them uh and then uh, why they just they didn't respond uh, more quickly do they have an explanation for that well, it was interesting. I was able to find the police report and had they, after they had, you know, investigated and what they had thought because that particular home had a reputation for being a party house. 
part of the reason why they they didn't take it seriously, like, oh, they're just probably having a wild party, uh, something going on. Um, there was a lot of drugs being sold through there. So the cops had, like, different scenarios. They thought, okay, um, the murder scene, it was a drug deal gone bad, and um, they you know, took the drugs and killed everyone because they didn't want to be caught. Like, uh, they had all these different scenarios, but it was in relation to drugs. And I think at the time, in the 60s, it was kind of like, oh, well, if you're a party person and it's drugs and it's Hollywood, you know, they didn't take it as seriously. And what was interesting is that when Susan Atkins was bragging in jail, she actually told Virginia Graham that they had a celebrity hit list of other celebrities they planned on killing um, because, like, they thought they thought after Sharon Tate they killed her, cops didn't come after them. They killed the LaBiancas, nothing happened. So we're, like, three, four months down the road, and they're like, oh, well, we could kill even more celebrities. They had Elizabeth Taylor on there. They had Frank Sinatra. They had Steve McQueen. They had Richard Burton. They had this whole laundry list of celebrities that they planned on killing because based on the other two killings they had done and no one, you know, was, was coming after them. Now that Charlie Manson has died, um, and I, I believe one of the four that were involved in the Tate murders actually has been released from prison. Is that true? Um, Linda Kasabian never actually uh, was put in prison okay. um, because she um, basically testified against everyone. And okay. I know that several of them have come up for parole. I believe Susan Atkins passed away. Um, but I think the other, uh, Tex Watson's still in jail, and um, I think one of the others is in jail as well. But Linda Kasabian changed her name, and she lives somewhere on the East Coast. And um, we know that uh, a book was written about this whole incident called Helter Skelter, written by one of the attorneys involved. Um, and there are people now that are actually saying that, that some of what was reported was actually inaccurate, and there might have been some government involvement in in this do you know of any of that does any of that ring true um i did see a little bit about that in my investigation but when i was reading the police report the actual physical police report on all the information that they gathered i just felt like the police were going down a path based on what i could read that they really thought it was like had to do with drugs and it had to do with a drug drug deal gone bad and they somehow felt like Roman Polanski was involved and maybe he owed somebody some money and they were coming to get him and so they were kind of going down this complete path of oh this is drug related and these are you know drug gangs and um so I think that's why it took them so long to to capture uh Charles Manson because they just thought you know they were very one one sided in their in their view of what's going on. As far as the government being involved, I I didn't find any information on that. Yeah, um, you know obviously this is a story that has stuck with the public consciousness. Uh, it is one of those uh, stories of legend. People seem to uh, have an intrinsic knowledge of it because it's part of our culture. Uh, when we when we have a story like that, is it something that we can learn from in any way? I think so. I mean, I think from, you know, what I found interesting about Sharon Tate is like, she was incredibly, obviously she was incredibly beautiful. She was an Aquarius. She had this really unique energy, but 
all of her family and friends would describe her as very personable, very charming, great sense of humor. And um, she almost felt like her beauty was a curse. Uh, when she started the movie Valley of the Dolls, her character was loosely based on Marilyn Monroe. And so she really had that kind of um, bittersweet, like I, I saw it like, very similar between her and Marilyn Monroe. They had, you know, they would choose men that weren't really right for them. And, you know, they were these beautiful women and everybody was using them for different reasons. And, um, I think for me, it's like, uh, when you look at celebrities, I mean, there's usually something, not everybody's life is perfect. And if you look under the hood or you open the door, you're going to see a lot of dark things going on. Her mom at the time when she decided to get into acting was really paranoid for her daughter and worried about the casting couch and was always, always worried that something was going to happen to her daughter. And whether she psychically knew that her daughter's life, you know, was going to be short, um, but she couldn't protect her from what was going to happen to her. But they were all, you know, concerned concerned, like, you know, do you really want to marry this director guy? And supposedly after he was married to her, he was cheating on her. And there was just all these strange things happening. And I feel like um, spiritually, you know, energetically, you know, who you keep company with is going to either attract positive things or negative things happening to you. And just based on the lifestyle that they were ha having, and they had this open door policy at their house, and Manson had been able to stop by the house, like, five months before he actually killed her. And she actually saw him and told him, like, hey, this guy is creepy. I don't feel comfortable around him. It's just in my mind, it's way too many coincidences, and there has to be some underlying karmic ties between them. We know where Roman Polanski is. We talked about that. Uh, where is Sharon Tate's family, and have they spoken out publicly? Yes. It's like the interesting thing um, about Sharon Tate, Sharon Tate's mom, Doris, became um, a huge activist for victim rights. And part of the reason why um, we have uh, victim rights today is because of her mother. Um, she uh, was basically honored by President George Bush Sr. Um, as an activist for her work. And the reason why we have victim rights laws in 50 states is because of her. And so she said that, you know, Sharon's no longer just a, a murder victim. She's now a face for, for victims' rights and tried to take her death and turn it into something positive. Um, sadly, one of her sisters passed away of breast cancer at the age of 40. Um, her father lived to be, like, I think, 82. And she has one sister last who lives uh, down in Orange County. County, um, and she continues to fight for uh, victims' rights, and then she also shows up at all the parole hearings for the Manson uh, followers to make sure that they don't get out of jail. What's next for you and or Death by Misadventure? Uh, our next episode is going to be about Elvis Presley. Oh, wow. Um, so that's going to be coming out on August 16th. And then um, the next one after that is going to be about uh, Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park. And then we're going to be starting our Unsolved Murder Mysteries in um, September. And um, our first story is going to be about Brett Cantor. And Brett Cantor 
uh, died at the age of 25. He used to be an A&R rep for Chrysalis Records. And he owned um, a club or part owner of a club called Dragonfly. And he's responsible for um, helping sign Jane's addiction and Rage Against the Machine. And he was killed one night after work. Real crime, and they've never solved his murder since that time. So we're going to kind of dig in and kind of see what's happening and why that is still unsolved after uh, 26 years. Well, JC, thank you so much for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. All right, welcome back to the program. We only have uh, just a minute or so left, but we thought it was important to put this next caller on. This is Sherry. Sherry, you've got a story related to our topic tonight? Uh, yeah, I I uh, met Sharon Tate three days before she died. I was oh, sitting wow. on sitting on the front porch at sixty six twenty Selma Avenue uh, in Hollywood with her having coffee right after she'd been told by Maria Graciette, who did psychometry, and uh, she when she picked up Sharon's ring, she said she said uh, don't go home. Don't go home. You're going to die. Some, it's horrible. It's blood everywhere. And uh, Sharon thought it was a big joke, she, you know. And I told her, I said, "Hey, you better believe this lady. This lady knows what she's talking about." And uh, anyway, Sharon, wow. Sharon Tate obviously didn't take her advice, and she went on home. Wow. Um, you know, would it be possible to have you back on when we have a few minutes to chat about this? Because I'd, I'd had some questions. Um, and we just don't have the time to talk about it now. What day would you like me to call you? Back? I'm going to I'm going to put you on hold. My producer's going to pick up the line, and we're going to get contact information. And we'll figure that out. Okay, figure that out. Okay. All right. All right. Hold on the line for me. Wow, that's that's kind of a bombshell right there. Um, and that's what this show's all about. That's going to do it for tonight. Sadly, we don't have any more time. I really appreciate J.C. Nova being on the program tonight on this 50th anniversary of Sharon Tate's murder by the hands of uh, four of the members of the Manson family. Fascinating. Uh, crime in a macabre way that still has our attention today uh, best of program tomorrow night i hope everybody has a great weekend it's beyond reality radio beyond reality radio is hosted by jason hawes and jv johnson and produced by alexandria johnson and slick eddie edwards for intercom radio beyond reality radio is distributed by westwood one radio networks stop by our facebook page and say hello follow the hosts on facebook as well for jason hawes follow at jason for jv johnson follow at jvj paranormal if you'd like to be a guest on beyond reality radio or you have a suggestion for a guest contact slick eddie edwards at slick eddie edwards at gmail.com be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.